Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I got three shifts a week, less than minimum wage. My friends will say I'm a reprobate. PRS pay me £3.68. 101 part-time jobs. Hello, you're listening to 101 part-time jobs. It's the podcast where I speak to some amazing bands and musicians about their various and precarious vocations over the years. I'm trying to get some good stories from their old jobs, because why not? Doug March is on today's episode. That's exciting, isn't it? Built to Spill's new album, When the Wind Forgets Your Name, is out now on Sub Pop. We talk about that, and Doug gives us some brilliant stories. Cheers for listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs. 
made possible by 2000 Trees Festival, who have announced rival schools as one of their headliners next year. Go to 2000treesfestival.co.uk to get your tickets that are cheaper now than they ever will be. Here's Doug March on 101 part-time jobs. That feels amazing to say on our little show. Cheers to you for listening. Go well. Well, my path was so, I, I uh, had a bunch of full-time jobs and, you know, just got away to tour every once in a while until I signed with Warner Brothers. And then I was able to quit my, you know, full-time job and, and have been able to live off of music since then. That was a clean slate, was it? That was a change overnight. I went from making no money at all from music to living off of it overnight, basically, by signing with Warner Brothers. Right. And how, how did that feel? I mean, and, and how did that evolve over time? Well, I, I um, had no intention of, of making a, a single dollar off of music. You know, my, I just wanted to do it because it was fun. And, you know, my goal and dream was to get to a point where we had a record label that would that would pay for our pay for us to go into the studio and we wouldn't have to spend our own money on our music and that was about as far as i even dared to dream so when we uh when i was i guess it was probably 1980 or 93 i think or 1994 i think maybe we put out uh our second album and uh all of a sudden there was a bunch of interest from some major labels and uh yeah i i the kind of the moment i knew that i wouldn't have to work a, a day job i was i was pretty much ready to sign and we're talking about 1997's perfect from now on for that first major yep mm-hmm. and so so between 92 93 to 97 that's that's a few years of courting from the major labels no yeah i i wonder if i have i'm trying to think of how how it I guess maybe what happened was 94, that record came out, keep uh, perfect, or uh, sorry, there's nothing wrong with love. And then that came out like in the fall. And then the whole next year was kind of when we started talking to labels and stuff. And I feel like by the end of 95, we'd actually, by the fall of 95, we had signed to Warner Brothers. And then 96 was making the record. And then early 97, the album came out. I'm pretty sure that's how it worked out. So it was... It was a faster turnaround than than uh, than you know sounded like when I first said it. I was born in '91, and and it's and it's sounding you know listening to it now, it it just sounds so amazing, and and actually quite a lot of bands have borrowed lyrics from it and lines and and melodies. I mean, I, this is a funny question to ask you, isn't it? But did it feel like a success immediately when you released "There's Nothing Wrong with Love"? Yeah, I was really psyched about it. I was I was um, I felt like. Uh, you know, that I'd gotten a chance to really make a record that, um, you know, it felt like kind of the first sort of pro record that I'd made. And we were able to, we recorded it and didn't really like the mixes very much and wanted to go, you know, remix it a little bit. And we were able to do that. And to me, that was mind blowing that, 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 uh, you know, that the label was willing to spend a couple thousand dollars more to, to actually make it what we wanted to make it instead of just, you know, just doing it as cheap as possible. Um, and I remember, yeah, I mean, just remember being really excited about it. I worked really hard on it and 
Um, you know, I felt like it was a cool batch of songs. I felt like it was a weird record, like different than what other people were doing. I was really proud of it. I, when I hear a song from it nowadays, like if something pops on, if I hear, hear it some over here somewhere or, you know, every once in a while I have to listen to something to, to, to whatever, see, see if I'm playing something right or whatever. Um, it doesn't sound good to me and I don't, I don't like that record very much. But at the time I was pretty, pretty proud of it. And you mentioned that you had those ambitions to to play music full time and have that opportunity. You know, you had that, let's call it what it is, like a dream to to play music. In punk rock and indie rock, I guess that's sort of unfashionable in some circles to be open about ambition and wanting to do it full time and working with a broad set of professionals yeah <laughs> you know in the rec in the record industry what's your experience there well i just i just didn't think that i was that talented or that that many people would be interested in the kind of music that i made um so it wasn't necessarily a, a, that i didn't have the ambition i just really didn't it just seemed out of my league you know i'm i'm kind of a mediocre singer guitar player um but somehow some people <laughs> you know some people listened to it and liked it and I was able to get a record deal and, and even the record deal, you know, for me, I wasn't like, Oh good. Now I, now I'm set for life at all. It was like, Oh cool. Now I can maybe have, you know, a few years where I get to do this for a while before I have to go back to working a day job. Did you feel that pressure? I guess for a lot of people, it's like, Oh, you got a record deal. Great. Now's the time to work even harder. Oh, a little bit. I mean, my I, my feeling about it was, I mean, I really didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to be famous or, you know, have a hit or anything like that. I wanted to, I wanted to have a career that grew slowly and maybe, you know, I wanted to be like the replacements. I wanted to be like bands that, uh, you know, just were making it enough that they could live off of it, but weren't shove down people's throats. I think that was what I was most concerned about with being on a major label was being forced, people forced to listen to my music that is on the radio all the time. And just like people hating to listen to me, but they had to because I came on the radio. You know, I wanted people to go to the record store and choose it for themselves, listen to someone, play it for them and make their own decision of whether or not they wanted to hear it again. <laughs> was that ever a risk? Did you ever get into that? I mean, I can kind of see that happening with car. No, nope, that was never a risk. No, nothing came close to being a hit at all. Um, and we were resistant to licensing our songs to any other to to any films or TV shows or commercials or anything. So you know, I just wanted the music to be as special as long as possible. And we we got like a nice chunk of money from Warner Brothers, enough to you know that we could I could stop working. We got a little publishing deal, so I, I got a little bit of money to so that I, I, I wouldn't have to work for a few years. And then, and then the band started making money off touring because, you know, we never got big, but we, we had a good enough following and toured enough that we could, between that and that money, there wasn't a whole lot of royalties, just kind of barely trickling in because just we didn't have that great of a record deal. And we didn't sell that many records. Um, so, you know, it, it's a modest living. It's been a modest living, but, but I haven't had to go back to a day job. As a group, were you quite good at being responsible and, you know, budgeting and kind of being, you know, your own managers in that sense? Totally. And, and we were, we, we, you know, we, 
I, we were always open to finding a manager, but it kind of had to be, it's almost like you had to have someone from the get-go that was a friend or, you know, just somehow it felt like the, the, the opportunity to get a manager kind of slipped past us and we had to just take care of it ourselves. But yeah, we were really, really frugal, you know, and everyone chipped in and did stuff. There was no, you know, there, we never, we've never had a roadie to this day. We don't have roadies. I mean, everyone just chips in and we're our own roadies, no guitar techs, nothing like that. We, we travel with, there's the band, a t-shirt person, a sound person, and then sometimes a tour manager. Sometimes we just split up the tour management duties ourselves. We don't even own a vehicle. We rent a van or we, we'll, we'll, we'll take a bus out if it's a long, big enough, long enough tour that, that, that it would kill us to do it in a van. Um, yeah, we're, we're, we're frugal for sure. I think if you're a bunch of kids and you, you know, for one thing, if you really think you're going to make it, go for it. You know, if you really, if you're, if you're convinced that you're going to stay relevant forever or if you just don't give a shit or if you're betting against yourself and think well this is going to pass anyway i might as well go into debt to this record company since i'm not really going to make any money off of it you know i mean there's 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 a lot of you know uh calculations and you know bets that you make when you when you when you do that stuff and you know i was i was i had i was young i had a kid and a wife and she was fiscally conservative um, and I also kind of, I, I don't know, I didn't really feel like I didn't want any of that other stuff. I felt I, I would have been embarrassed to go out on a tour bus if we weren't making enough money to pay for the tour bus and still bring some money home. I, I, yeah. Talking about those, those full-time jobs you had, you know, before touring and, and, and the record deal took off, are there any anecdotes or stories from that time that, that you kind of think fondly of now or unfondly? <laughs> well, my my jobs were always just like unskilled labor, crappy jobs. I didn't I didn't go to college. I went to college for less than a year, and so my jobs were like dishwashing, phone banks, Kinkos copies, and that that would that job was like maybe one of the better jobs I had because you know there's. You know, you gotta you gotta do some some work there that you know that was make flyers or um, you know you met some people there. The people that worked there were cool. That was in Seattle, so it was cool. It was at a cool hip hip part of Seattle at a cool time in the early '90s, and that's where I met like Chris Aquino, who was who ran Up Records, who put out "There's Nothing Wrong with Love." I met him while I was working at Kinko's. Were they short-lived jobs? Were were they were they? Would you hold on to them quite well? No, no. I I mean, uh, like Paul Westerberg says, hardest job is finding one. It fucking sucks being sat at home. Yeah, trying to find. Yeah. it just seems. It, it is. Yeah, it's. I I hated it so much, and you know that's the only thing that made yeah it made these jobs, you know, okay at all was that you know at least I wasn't looking for a job. I worked at a screen printing place for a while t-shirt screen printing place not a, not a fun one it was like pretty pretty serious like you know not quite corporate but just uh you know it was a nine to five you know not not creative job even though something like that sounds like it might be sort of creative and then the last job that i had before i was able to quit was at the neurolux uh which is a a bar in Boise that had just opened and it's around still today. And it's like the band where, 
or the, the, the club where young, cool bands cut their teeth in Boise. Um, it's maybe like a 300 capacity, you know, cool club. Saw tons of great shows. We, you know, I've seen a lot of great shows since I stopped working there in the last, you know, 20 years or whatever. And we just, we just played there last, last month. Um, and that, so that job was pretty cool, but I, I was there for maybe a couple years and starting to, you know, starting to burn out on it. It was definitely the, the funnest job that I'd ever had, but still, a, you know, still, you know, not, not as fun as my current job of just being a musician for sure. Did you have that friction where you were doing something and you knew there might be something in the music? There was something a bit more out there or, or feeling like that? I was, I felt really lucky. I felt like I had to work to make money just like everyone else does. And everyone, everyone in every band that I knew had to, you know, there was only a couple people, you know, I don't even know. I can't even think of anyone that I knew personally that was making a living off of music. Maybe, maybe there was like, excuse me, people like in, uh, in like bar bands or something that played music five nights a week at a, at a bar, you know, play covers or something. Maybe someone like that was making money, making a living, doing it full time. Um, but no one I knew was making money or even dreaming of making money and bands that were similar to us, like the replacements or dinosaur pixies, you know, they, they were getting signed to big labels. I didn't, I don't know. I didn't know if they were living off it or, you know, how well they were doing or anything. But uh, for me, it was, I had to work a regular job. That's just life. And then every spare moment that I wasn't working, I was working on music because I was just passionate about it and, and loved it. It was the funnest thing to do. And, you know, uh, when I moved to Seattle, um, and, uh, and I was in the band Tree People right before Built to Spill, we all, you know, worked jobs and then practiced like four days a week and just worked our, you know, that was everyone's main priority was the band, even though we all knew we weren't going to make a living off of it. Hi. Are you part of the band? I am. I'm just doing a quick little interview thing here. You're, no, you're all good. They just asked when they could have the green room. Oh, and the band? And um, do you need time to? Yeah, yourself? yeah. Um, can you tell Isa to tell them that I'm I'm just doing an interview and I'll be, I'll be out of here in like ten minutes or fifteen minutes or something. Perfect. Thank you so Thanks. much. Thank, Thank you. Anyway, yeah. So I, um, yeah. There was never to me. It was like you know, uh, every moment that I wasn't at my regular job that I had to make money, I was working on music. And I just thought I was going to do that until I didn't really think much about the future. I, I just thought about where I was at the time and, you know, thinking about the new songs I was working on and, you know, go on, yeah. go on tour when I could every once in a while and try to get, try to, trying to find a job that I could sort of deal with. Um, yeah. I find that so interesting and I, and I love that because I find it's a lot like maybe something like skateboarding where you know you, you said there that you know, you'd be practicing four nights a week with three people but there wasn't necessarily a feeling like okay you know this is our career you know but we're, we're gonna do it anyway we wanted to yeah we wanted to be killer you know I mean we didn't think we didn't think that that being killer meant that you were gonna make any money off of it all the bands that we love didn't make any money you know a couple of them maybe did but making money and being killer were not equated in our minds and all we wanted to do was be like rad as we could be 
that's a really interesting thing that I, I wonder, you know, applies to a lot of people working a variety of different jobs that being good at something doesn't necessarily correlate directly with success. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Totally. Yep. How do you ruminate on that? How, how do you feel about that? To me, it's arbitrary. I mean, there's so many bands that are way better than Built to Spill that never got, never made a penny. You know, that's just, it has to do with who you meet. Um, just a lot of luck, a lot of like who you're playing with and meeting the right kind of people that you can keep a band together long enough to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, having, you know, a support system of family or whatever to help you out. Um, you know, being the right place at the right time, meeting, you know, like meeting Chris Tacchino while I was working at, at Kinko's. I couldn't have done this without Chris Tacchino for many reasons, not just because he put out that record. Um, you know, and then I felt like we kind of got associated, even though we weren't a grunge band, we kind of, we kind of got signed when a bunch of Northwest grunge stuff was being signed and that we kind of got caught up in that thing as well. Um, right. Part of it too, Chris Dacchino's roommate was Mike Johnson, who worked, who played in Dinosaur bass for a while. So, you know, he, he introduced our music to Joe McEwen at Warner Brothers who signed us. So just all these, you know, just arbitrary chance things that make the difference from, you know, making a living off this to being completely an obscure footnote, you know, or even not even that. And, and there's so, I mean, you know it. I mean, I'm sure you have you know, friends and bands are just all the music you've discovered yourself, you know, how much incredible stuff there is out there that no one gave a shit about. There's a lot. I, I, I must have met half a dozen people in my life that I just think have the best voices and write the best songs, but, you know, they sort of, maybe not, they're not shy necessarily, but they're just like, well, why would I self-promote? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, I think I wonder about that is, is you mentioned Chris Kino. I wonder if bands kind of need they need to stumble across some kind of mentor where they have a kind of shamanic figure in their life that they can say is this a good idea or is this an awful idea you know and they can kind of make calculated steps for sure and i had a few of those i mean uh in tree people the bass player was the oldest guy in the band pat um pat brown pat Smalljohn. he he was the person that told me when i was you know, I was like six years younger than him. When I was still a teenager, he told me, oh, you shouldn't have to work. You should be able to just make music for a living. And I didn't take it seriously, but, you know, he's the one that taught us that we could we could press our own records and book our own shows. And, um, yeah, so he was a complete mentor for me. And there have been other people, too, that, you know, have whatever, in, in whatever way have made this possible. Great bus stop advertising ah, <laughs> thank you yeah that was that was my ex-wife's idea um she gave it she gave it to me just and then i sent it off to um sub pop and they did the design but yeah i thought it was a pretty incredible idea and i thought sub pop did a really nice job of pulling it off so thanks i don't think about marketing at all i never have and i still don't so the only marketing that's been done is that and you know sub pop is going to put up some billboards in Mexico city, they said, and they're going to put up some posters in Sao Paulo and then, you know, whatever social media stuff happens, you know, it's mostly going to come from them. I don't, 
I have no ideas about marketing. This was just a funny idea that, that my ex-wife had. And to me, it was more about, to me, it was almost like not even promotion. It was more just putting a funny joke out there into the world. And, um, you know, so <laughs> I don't know how many, how many records that thing's going to sell, but, you know, it made a few people laugh that, 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 you know, that appreciated it. I think now that we have more access and transparency into how bands go about their business, you know, when there, when there is a, a band that isn't, you know, glossy or shiny and, and, and what, however you want to say that, that relying on comedy is, is, is a good trick. Exactly. <laughs> to me, the videos were more about collaborating with Jordan Minkoff, who I think is just a comic genius and, you know, their promotion as well. But for me, it was more about him, him, you know, making his art. How did that come about and how did you find working with him? Uh, well, we met him, um, I don't know, 10 years ago or something. I keep saying 10 years ago because I have no idea. Could Anything between like 7 and 25 years ago all blends together for me. But we met him when we played with his band Slam Dunk, uh, my favorite, my all-time favorite band. Um, and then, you know, he, he makes videos and he made a couple of videos for our last album and um yeah i just think he's incredible so he's my he's my go-to and he's been willing to to do it so he's made two videos for the this record's coming out and he's making a he's in the middle of making a third one that'll come out when the record comes out next month the fool's gold is is brilliant you look fantastic ah, thanks i don't know if you noticed and i don't know how many people have noticed this but the whole video is fake slow motion did that strike you the other side about it? No, I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> I know. Well, we did it, and I thought it was pretty obvious. And then Jordan's like, people aren't even going to know that this is fake slow motion. But I don't know. If, oh. you, can, if you want to try it again and keep that in mind, to me, that's the best part of it. But it's sort of like it, we almost did too good of a job, I think. Well, there's a, where it dribbles out of the spray. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's the only, yeah. that's the main time. Right. There's some tells, <laughs> but I guess, I guess it's un, unclear if uh, – Maybe people think that it's not all supposed to be slow motion. You know what I mean? Like maybe some of it's slow motion and some of it's not, but the whole thing is supposed to be, you know, fake slow motion. But it was really fun. That's brilliant. Great. To, I, you know, I think you can feel that as a fan. I think in a world where, you know, if, if you're close to any kind of bands at all, you know how much making a music video is kind of a thorn in anyone's side. Yeah, totally. or, or how it can how it can be. Totally, no, I agree. No, this was like this was a joy. It was it was, it was fun to make as it looks looks like it was. It was so painless and just yeah, it was it was great. What are you looking most forward to? You know, are there any tunes on When the Wind Forgets Your Name that you're most excited about people hearing, or are there places that you're playing on tour that that you know you're really really particularly looking forward to? Not really. Yeah, for me, it's just kind of uh, just rolling along with with it all, you know. I, I, uh, yeah, the you know the records, you know, I don't know. I've had, I've had a lot of records come out and stuff. It's hard to get too excited about it, you know. It's it's nice when people are excited about it, um, mm. but for me, it's just sort of, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, it's, it's your first on Sub Pop, which yeah. uh, which is kind of a you know a funny full circle. Yeah, no, that's rad. I'm I'm excited about that, and they've been great to work with. And then right right now we're on tour, and to me it's like one night's as good as the next. We, you know, last night or the night before last, 
we had, we had a show in Billings, Montana, and there's like 150 people at the show. And it's still a blast, you know, still play our faces off and have a good time. Um, and then, you know, we have, then we'll play, you know, in Chicago or New York, we'll play for a thousand or so people. And it's doesn't, to me, it's all good. I, I, I just like, like being able to do this. Great to hear. That's, that's really brilliant. Thank you so much for, for being up for this. Darling. Yeah, you too, Giles. Thanks for your patience and, uh, and oh. the nice, nice interview. Tree People opened for, um, in 1991, we op we played Dinosaur was my favorite band, and we got a chance to open for them in Portland. And it was Dinosaur headlining, and then Nirvana was supporting them, and then us. And just a big giant show. Couldn't believe how lucky we were. And um, and our bass player broke a string. Pat, the person I was talking about. And we had, you know, we had like a 30 minute set or something, broke a string, didn't have any extra strings. And he just like, just, I sat down on the edge of the stage and smoked a cigarette and just like thought it was, you know, just like thought we were going to just, nothing was going to happen. And he like tied his bass string, tied a knot in it and restrung it and like somehow managed to salvage it. And we played our show and it was like a heroic moment. So there was Doug March on 101 Part-Time Jobs. All of you who are listening to this show basically mean that I can keep on doing it. Thank you so much. See you next Tuesday for a new episode. As ever, here's Cox Barra. I've been working all day for me, mate, on the side. Running around like a blue ass fly. I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day for me, mate. Every bleeding minute I've been on the go. Up and down the ladder like a fiddler's elbow. I've been working, yeah, I've been working all day for me, mate. This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast.